Hello, it's Louise Boyle here, Senior Climate Correspondent, and welcome to the Independent Premium Events Podcast. In this series, you'll get the chance to listen back to all of the live events that we put on here at the Indy for our premium subscribers. If you aren't subscribed already, click the link in the description and sign up today for access to loads of exclusive articles, including in-depth analysis from people like me, long reads, opinion pieces, and much, much more. As a subscriber, you can attend events like the one you're about to hear for free and get involved with them as well. So make sure you click the link in the description of this podcast and subscribe to Independent Premium. Hello, everyone, and welcome along to Preventing the Next Pandemic. I'm Lucy McInerney, Assistant Editor at The Independent, and I'll be your host this evening. I'm delighted to be joined this evening by a truly international panel, starting with my colleague, senior climate correspondent here at The Independent, Louise Boyle, joining us all the way from Rhode Island. Dr. Peter Lee, who is a China policy specialist at the Humane Society International, who is in Houston, Texas. And Dr. Max Graham, founder and CEO of conservation group Space for Giants, live all the way from Kenya. Tonight is part of the Independent Premium virtual event series. And over the next 60 minutes, our panel of experts will discuss the measures that need to be taken to prevent future outbreaks of viruses such as COVID-19. Scientists believe the coronavirus pandemic that swept across the planet this year is likely to have made the jump from animals to humans at a live animal market in the Chinese city of Wuhan. So how do we stop something like that from happening again? You can submit questions to our panel using the Q&A box at the bottom of your screens. We'll try and get to as many of those as we can. So please don't be shy. Many of you have also submitted your questions ahead of this event as well. And we're going to start with one very thought-provoking question from a reader named Christopher Basson, which I think sets up the evening well. Mr. Basson asks, isn't the point of pandemics that they are black swan events, which cannot be entirely prevented? That the best approach is to manage the probability of pandemics occurring in the future, prepare for when they do actually occur, and attempt to mitigate the future effects of any occurrence that may happen. Dr. Peter Lee, um, what are your thoughts on that kind of take on where we are with with pandemics? Uh, I would say that, uh, you know, wildlife trade, wildlife consumption, or wildlife wet market is only one of the, uh, you know, potential, you know, breeding grounds for uh, outbreak of pandemics that are the, you know, possible uh, you know, breeding grounds as well, such as, you know, concentrated animal farming operations around the world. So wherever and whenever you see a large number of animals, you know, forced into a small and crowded conditions, and that could be a problem, you know, for, uh, you know, pandemic outbreak. So I would say, yes, so you can definitely not entirely, you know, rule out the possibility a pandemic may happen, but we can try our best to do it. Um, Louise, in terms of this particular um, pandemic, this outbreak of coronavirus and COVID-19, as it's also known, um, as I mentioned, it's believed to have started at a a market in Wuhan, but you've written an awful lot about this over the course of the last six, seven months. But it's not about the issue of there being a problem with there being wet markets in China altogether. It's a very particular way that these wet markets are run and a very particular way that these particular animals are, are are kept in kind of unsanitary conditions. Is that right? Yeah, I think if we think about it as sort of wild animals are these reservoirs for enormous amounts of pathogens. And when they're left as they are in their natural habitats, 
there's really no issue for us. The issue comes when we're taking these animals and putting them in crowded conditions, unsanitary conditions, conditions that are often very stressful for the animals. They then shed pathogens and they can infect each other or they can infect, infect humans, um, which is known as zoonotic spillover. That's a zoonotic spillover event. Um, you know, viruses can jump. Um, and that's what's believed to have happened with the coronavirus, as you said. So, um, Dr. Lee, as um, Louise has mentioned, the zoonotic spillover event, do we know anything about what, what potentially has happened in Wuhan in particular? And what species we're, we're referring to there? I, I think I've heard, read about bats being involved, pangolins being involved. What, what can you tell us a, a bit more about that in terms of leading to this zoonotic spillover instance? Yeah, so Wuhan's uh, uh, wildlife market it was a typical of wildlife market, similar wildlife markets in China. You see a large number of animals, you know, different species, and some of those animals are captive bred, and uh, quite some uh, were wild caught. And when they put all these animals together, and uh, you know, suffering, you know, from uh, different physical and psychological problems. So these are the you know, animals that could easily have, you know, viruses, you know, pathogens, you know, cross-infecting uh, each other. Now, what I want to point out is this, you know, when we talk about the wildlife market, wet marketing, that's just one small piece. In fact, majority of the wildlife animals are sent directly to the uh, restaurants, to the catering businesses, to the uh, backyard behind the kitchens for slaughter. So the uh, wet markets only account for no more than 10% of all the animals, you know, to be sold. Now there is also another piece with trans-provincial transport, long-distance transport, large number of animals, wild caught and captive bred, are uh, crowded together. And also there is, you know, breeding farms, you know, mixing wild caught and captive bred animals together. So all the viruses or the pathogens from the wild right, are transferred you know, to animals in captivity. So it's the entire link of the production that is, you know, problematic. So, um, Max, when Dr. Lee has already referred to the fact that these animals are not just kept in wet markets, they're transported over great distances, and they're also um, kind of farm-bred animals mixed in with wild-caught animals. Your expertise in, is obviously in Africa. What kind of um, animals are you seeing that are most popular in terms of being illegally traded? Um, and where, which are the ones that are really causing the problem? Well, it's a, it's, that's a good question. Um, there are around about a thousand species of wild animals that are currently at risk of extinction because of the illegal wildlife trade. Um, an animal, that was hardly known by, for example, the UK public is one of those, um, and that's the pangolin. And the pangolin is the most traded wildlife species on earth. Um, there are around a million pangolins that are believed to be traded in the last 15 years for their meat. Um, but of course, you know, they're not the only animal. I mean, the animals are traded um, for their meat, they're traded for their parts, and they're traded as pets. So what um, people know about globally from here on the African continent are some of the most charismatic animals. So for example, elephants for ivory, rhino for their horn, um, and then increasingly we're seeing large cats for their bones. Um, but there are, much, there are many more sort of cryptic species that have been traded um, as pets, um, cheetahs, uh, parrots, 
um, other species of monkeys, great apes. But I think when we're talking about you know the risks of pandemic, we're talking specific around specifically around sort of for for meat consumption. I think all illegal wildlife trade, especially the trade of of live animals, but um, you know what's what's happening and what's really interesting is that um, it's not simply the trade in wildlife, but it's an integrated range of factors that's contributing to the emergence of pandemics. Um, in what we're seeing on the continent is that, for example, in wildlife markets here or, or, or bush meat markets, um, you remember that on the continent there are 17 million Africans. Who are eating uh, wild meat for protein, and there are many, many. In fact, most of those species are not dangerous um, in terms of you know, being at risk of pandemics. There are some species that are particularly we're concerned around. You know, great apes are obviously a big, a big risk. Um, bats, pangolins, but the majority of those species, antelopes, um, are, are, are just going to be, they're, they're fine. So it's quite important when we talk about illegal wildlife trade, we're quite specific about um, some of these species. But regardless, the actual trading of these animals and they're crowded into conditions or they've been put in markets makes them incredibly, um, it, it creates these risks. Now, what we're seeing here is that because certain wild species are, are reducing in number, when a hunter would go out to hunt, for example, for meat, they go, they focus on a small number of species, large-bodied species. Because you know the numbers of those large-bodied species are reducing, you're having to go out and hunt a larger number of species. So a greater number of species are coming into the marketplace, which is exposing people to more wildlife species. Um, and that's that's a real concern. So it's the mixture of um, the illegal wildlife trade, biodiversity loss, and of course habitat loss, because you're getting a greater exposure to the interface between people and wildlife at the same time. And it's this combination which is the ticking time bomb for the emergence of these new, these new diseases. So um, Louise, Max has just mentioned there the idea of the loss of um, habitat or the, you know, the, the infringement upon habitat of an awful lot of these wildlife species. And you obviously, as a, as a climate correspondent, as someone, you're, you're very across the brief of not only what we're doing in the independent with our uh, Stop the, the Illegal Wildlife Trade campaign, but also then how that marries in with things like deforestation. And you've, you've just written today, in fact, about the uptick in um, hunting of jaguars in Latin America. Um, can you tell me a bit more about that and how prevalent it is on that continent? Yeah, so Max makes a really good point about this with the deforestation and habitat loss. So the, the thing with the jagger trade, th this is an emerging issue. Conservationists themselves are still trying to put a, sort of a number on it. They think about 30% of jaggers have been lost in the past three generations. But again, so there, there was probably maybe 130,000 left in the wild. The jagger is facing multiple threats. So, the, But the, one of the main ones, of course, is the Amazon. We're losing the Amazon at tremendous rates. Um, that's due to wild, wildfires, some that are being set intentionally um, you know, for increased industry, increased farming, increased logging. Um, and that creates this problem where not only is the jaggers habitat being taken from it and they range over a really wide area. So that is quite detrimental to their population numbers. But in addition to that, it then means that people can has, have easier access to these animals. The Amazon, of course, is, you know, really difficult terrain. 
it's very difficult sort of historically for people to get access to but you know as you raise forests then these animals are just much more exposed and then um peter when it comes to as, as i mentioned at the beginning you're a china policy specialist so when max mentioned something like a pangolin which i'll be frank i did not really know i was aware of the word but i didn't really know what it looked like until this year and now i'm very very aware i mean does the Chinese palace just really, really hanker after after pangolin meat? What what's creating this particular demand? Is it all is it all traditional Chinese medicine? That's a great question. Yes, pangolin uh, is one of the most hunted illegally poached species in the world, and much of the uh, you know illegal uh, record pangolins uh, have been shipped to China. Uh, now here there are a lot of misperceptions about wildlife consumption in China. Uh, in fact. Wildlife meat is not part of the mainstream Chinese food culture. I conducted a survey uh, in, you know, um, different parts of China uh, in April. We went into 212 households. We opened the refrigerator to find out what's inside the refrigerator. What we found uh, were all the same, mostly the same thing as we had in North America and uh, in uh, uh, Europe, like uh, chicken, uh, fish, sea fish, uh, those, those are the regular foods. We failed to find a frozen snake. <laughs> we failed to find, uh, you know, pangolin meat or red deer meat or any other wildlife animal meat. So in, in other words, so yes, there, there has been a demand for pangolin meat on a pangolin scale for traditional Chinese medicine, but those demands, I strongly, you know, argue, have been created by the industry. Uh, by the traders for profit. Now, there has, I have never read anything like this, you know, consumers in China protest demanding to eat snake meat or pangolin meat. But if you, if China had a short supply of pork or beef or seafood or fish, there will be riots in the country. So that's why the so-called, uh, the, uh, uh, the Chinese eat everything, you know, from anything can fly, uh, except airplanes can swim, except you know uh, submarines. That's just the, the perception, or that part of the narrative created by the industry. So then, if we're thinking about you know throwing this a bit further ahead, if we're thinking about what we need to do, and obviously it requires an awful lot of international global cooperation and legislation, but how much do you think there is? Uh, um, a project that needs to be kickstarted in China in terms of changing consumer behavior, or does that consumer behavior not exist in China? Do you think, Peter? I would say a lot of work should be done uh, to correct the narrative or to debunk the narrative of the industry. For example, you know, uh, pangolin scales. Yes, pangolin scales were documented as ingredient in traditional Chinese medicine that can take back 800 years ago or 1,000 years ago. But I have, we have to understand this, you know, traditionally, you know, traditional Chinese medicine contained very little animal parts. Most of the ingredients were herbs or, you know, minerals, because in ancient China, hunting skill was not that developed. It was very hard to hunt, uh, you know, uh, a bear, right, for gallbladder or a pangolin for the scales, right? So, and also traditional Chinese you know, medicine practitioners warned against slaughter animals to save people's life. They argue 
if you try to end a life to save another life, life will not be saved. That's traditional, traditional Chinese medicine, you know, master practitioners in the argument. So it is in the last 40 years, the wall of consumption and the wall of use in traditional Chinese medicine has, you know, you know, grown out of proportion. So it's the modern, you know, industrialized animal farming, wild farming, and extensive, you know, trade, including illegal trade that have contributed to this so-called, oh, that's our tradition, and then, you know, wildlife animal parts are life-saving. So, Max, would you say then from your side of, um, of, of the supply chain, for want of a better way of putting it, of the illegal wildlife trade, I mean, you wrote about this for, um, for us in The Independent a couple of weeks ago, about how, you know, um, there, are, there are legitimate um, import-export companies that are kind of being used as a front to get things out of Africa over to China. And as, as Peter says, um, back in, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago when traditional Chinese medicine would have first had its, you know, been in its infancy, there were no super tankers floating back and forth across the Indian Ocean bringing pangolins over there. So, you know, what, what kind of, um, what kind of hotspots are you seeing developing in terms of uh, that trade route through Africa, from Africa out to China? And are there any other trade routes from Africa to anywhere else in terms of hotspots that are looking for African animals or African animal parts? You know, I mean, just to, the first thing is that, you know, the, I mean, the illegal wildlife trade is, it's not, um, it's not just a, an issue for Africa. I mean, Southeast Asia is a major source of wildlife um, flowing into those markets, um, South America, and interestingly, even you know, even um, United Kingdom. I remember reading a very interesting article about eels. Um, you know, quite quite rare eels um, being collected in the UK to be sent off um, to to wildlife markets. So that's the first thing. But the 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 real challenge is um, where you get a vacuum in governance and law enforcement. Um, that is where we have some of the biggest challenges. So if you can imagine um, in, in the equatorial forests of Africa, for example, um, you've got some of the most unstable, unsafe places in the world. And there, there is a real law enforcement vacuum. Um, so it becomes quite possible to, to move through the forest and, and clear out wild animals. But it, the, the, the animals and the wildlife parts you know, the, the, there's an entire chain um, from the point where an animal is killed or captured through to the point of the market. And along that chain, you require um, a, a, a quite a sophisticated uh, amount of money and networks to enable the wild animal to move along the chain, you know. And, and so you can imagine you're moving from the point to um, you know, to a, a local motorbike, someone operating that motorbike, to a, a main road. From that main road, through to a larger road, then you get to a port. Once you're in the port, you need to get onto a boat, and all along that, all along that chain, there's various opportunities to intervene. Um, and what the illegal cartels do, I mean, these, the, and the, I, I should say, these aren't specialist wildlife cartels. You actually have. You know, this is a huge business. It's um, it's the I think it's the fourth largest illegal trade in the world after weapons, human trafficking, and drugs. So there is a lot of muscle that goes into this. So the major points we're seeing is these big ports. You can imagine the big ports in Nigeria, 
what, West Africa, Central Africa, Southern Africa, and East, East Africa have become major, major um, problems. But any major port, um, there's going to be an opportunity for these criminal syndicates to corrupt the system, or they're not corrupting the system, working with operators, either wittingly or unwittingly, to get these animals traded. And Louise, you're, you're usually um, based in New York. And I mean, I think you've said that there have been examples of, of um, problematic, I don't want to say all wet markets, but problematic wet markets um, in certain parts of the United States, even, even some in New York itself. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, we did actually, in a recent article that, that I worked on there, we found something like 70 or 80 um, live animal markets um, in New York City, and which which surprised me. I mean, I had oh, I had um, about that. And again, it was it was a similar idea that these markets were in very close. I mean, New York City, they were in very close proximity to where people lived, to schools, to parks. Um, there was a sort of intermingling of species. Again, um, mostly I would say you know farm animals, um, but you know there were some wild birds and poultry um, there as well. So yeah, this is not a this is not one region specific. This is something that we all should be taking a look at as, as you know, across the world. And Peter, I'm going to take in a, um, a, a viewer's question here. Their name, they haven't given a proper first name, surname combination. It's Gloucestershire MD and MNDA. They, this person asks, so where are the pangolins and other endangered species being consumed, brackets if at all, in China or Southeast Asia? Is artificially created demand in high-end restaurants or simply a created demand for traditional medicine? Uh, in China, uh, yes, you know, that, uh, mostly wildlife animals are consumed in South China, uh, in the Guangdong area. But uh, in the last 40 years, especially in the last 20 years, wildlife consumption has also been spread to the rest of the China, like in Wuhan. Wuhan traditionally uh, is not a wildlife consumption, you know, place, uh, but also you can, you know, get, uh, you know, snakes, you know, flown from Guangdong or from Guangxi and to Northeast China. So those are the places, but there are also, you know, special restaurants uh, for exotic food, but other restaurants, even though there are regular restaurants, but they have, you know, wildlife animals on the menu, uh, so they can, you know, serve, uh, you know, to the exotic eaters. Now, wildlife animals, especially in South China, Southwest China, and some parts of Central China, like uh, Wuhan, uh, you know, if on the menu, you have wildlife, wildlife animals on the menu, so your restaurant can have, you know, profits much, much higher than the other, you know, restaurants. So it's been aggressively promoted by the traders. I just want to you know, add to the point which I made earlier. When I say that uh, there was really no such demand from the consumers, uh, I'm not saying that uh, they're not, you know, uh, through, you know, thicker type of uh, eaters, yes, they are in China, but mostly because of encouragement by the traders. They, they promote wildlife animals as good for your sex, good for fertility, if you have a you know, childbearing you know, problem, good for your skin for young ladies, and good for memory if, I, if you are kids you know, struggling at a school. So they try to make it good for longevity. They try to make it you know, good for everybody. Now, we don't, have, we don't see that when I grew up in China. I never ate snake meat. My parents never shop for wild animal meat and cook at home, never, right? So that's all you know, promoted in the last 40 years. So 
I, and the other thing I found very interesting about a piece that you wrote for us yesterday was this idea uh, in China of these mega farms, which you kind of alluded to a little bit already, which are a combination of animals bred in captivity mixed with wild caught animals. What, what exactly are these mega farms and how prevalent are they in China? You know, China started the wildlife farming in the 1980s. That's, that's what I say, you know, massive wildlife farming never existed in China's past. So there is nothing traditional or cultural about it. It's something new in the 1980s. So there are different farms, you know, farming snakes. You know, they tried a pangolin, which was not successful. They experimented rhino farming. They had a tiger farm, they had bear farms, they had all this kind of wildlife farm. Now here's the situation. I can, even though they say, you know, captive breeding is conservation friendly because if you can farm these animals, then people will not go to the wild for the wild individuals, but that's a force. Now this is why. Because when you have wildlife farming operations, that's a greater danger to the wildlife in the wild. This is why, you know, snake farms, for example, in order to breed a lot of snakes for the food market, they, 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 they are operating at a loss. So they send people out to the wild to capture snakes and bring back to the farms, right? And then, you know, traditionally, if a hunter wants to capture snake to sell to the market, He's, he was typically capturing adult snake, right? They would not, he would not capture juvenile snakes. He would not capture snake eggs because he has no place to, to fatten them, right? To breed them. But today, the snake farms want not only, you know, adult snakes, but juvenile snakes, but also snake eggs. So they capture everything from the wild. So causing a bigger damage to ecology. Since the 1990s, one province in China has been plagued by large billions of rats every year, overflowing the banks of, you know, Dongting Lake, China's second largest lake. 20 billion of, you know, rats were, re were reported in 2009 because the snakes were gone in that province. So there's knock-on impact then to the local people from kind of, you know, their own kind of compatriots. Yes, and also it's not only an ecological damage, but also a public health damage because all these rats overflow the villages, right? Now, the, the provincial capital of Changsha, of Hunan province, every day, last, and up to last year, consumed 10 tons of live snakes. Most of those snakes were wild caught. Interesting. So, I suppose, what I, I, I've already read, alluded to these met, these sorry, forgive me, these mega farms that we've, we've heard of in China. And, uh, and Peter, you've explained that this kind of demand was really kind of manufactured yes. since the 1980s. It's not something that harks back to some form of, you know, Chinese dynasty. So Max, in your time working in Kenya, have you seen a massive uptick recently in demand for the animals, that the elephants you're trying to, to protect or, or other species? Uh, absolutely, yeah, I mean, there's been a, I mean, there's been a huge uptake um, you know, upsurge in, in the poaching um, of elephants, and rhinos, but also many other endangered species, um, particularly over the last 20 years. And, um, and that coincides really with, um, and I mean, it's attributed to um, greater uh, purchasing power in Asia. Um, so, you know, there's a correlation with this massive illegal train, illegal, illegal um, trade in, in wildlife and the loss of um, large numbers of populations 
um, with um, with you know this this greater purchasing power in Asia. So to give you an example, um, you know there were uh, in one park alone uh, a drop from fifty five thousand elephants to thirteen thousand um, in the last twenty years. Most of Africa's forest elephants have been lost in the last ten years, um, and the knock on effects are massive. For example. Um, and this is something that Peter alluded to. Forest elephants affect the way that um, forests are structured, the canopy structure, so the way that they, they, they eat and forage in those landscapes creates a canopy structure, which is ideal for carbon sequestration. Um, and as, as much as 7% of the carbon that's sucked up from the atmosphere um, in Central Africa is attributed to forest elephants. So if, you, if you remove them, you're not only sort of having an ecological you know, disaster in terms of cascading effects in the ecosystem, you're also taking away the ability of the planet to hedge against global warming. And that's been you know, the value of that carbon stock in, in monetary terms is around $43 billion. So, you know, this, this sort of, and that's one species um, we're talking about. So you can imagine um, what it means when you start thinking about the other 999 species that are currently threatened by the big wallet trade. Yeah, I mean, I heard that um, I was fortunate enough to go to the northern Serengeti a few years ago, and I heard that in the 70s you couldn't turn around for hitting a rhino, um, a rhino. whereas now there's five of them in all of the northern Serengeti, and good luck to you if you think you're going to spot one if you're going there for a safari for a week. We sadly did not. Um, but when it comes to things like deforestation, Louise, and Stefan Cotto has submitted this following question, which I think will be quite uh, interesting to hear actually take from all of you, but I'll start with Louise at least. Um, deforestation mainly caused by meat, dairy and egg consumption to raised crops um, to feed livestock is the leading cause of natural habitat destruction, which is the main link of zoonotic diseases creating epidemics and pandemics. What about starting to shift Western countries towards a plant-based diet, which would free up to 75% of farmlands the size of China, the US, EU, and Australia combined? Plenty of space to feed the world and restoring natural habitats and reducing green gas emissions. Now, obviously this all has come from Stefan. I don't, I don't doubt him for a second, but I don't know that all those facts are absolutely 100% accurate, but do we, do we need to start eating less meat, no meat, and more, more fruit and veg, Louise. I mean, I, I think Stefan makes a really good point and makes a really good link between since we are, you know, we, we're losing vast amounts of land across the world, as you'd say, forested forests, you know, and those ancient trees that are, the, are for carbon sequestration, you know, they're the carbon rich resources that we need, and we are losing them to, to farming. So yeah, the, there is a question of whether we should, especially in the West, should be changing our diets and eating a lot less meat. I think that's a really valid point. Peter, do you think there's room for um, the Chinese population to maybe shift their, their diets away from a meat heavy diet towards one that is maybe more focused on plants? Absolutely. There has also been another misperception that people in China eat wildlife animal meat because they don't have enough animal protein intake. That's, that's false. China has the world's biggest livestock industry producing 80 million tons of meat a year. Um, and China also has the world's biggest ocean fishing capacity and the world's biggest aquatic farming industry. Uh, but traditional Chinese diet is not dominated by, was not dominated by animal protein. 
So a lot of vegetable, a lot of other, you know, plant-based foods. So I, I strongly believe that, uh, you know, not, say, not saying that other countries have uh, not much to do at the same time, but I would say, yeah, I agree with Ruth just said, um, industrialized countries and major powers like China, United States have a global responsibility uh, to take a bit to reduce, you know, meat consumption. China, no, there is no hunger in China, right? And, uh, you know, wildlife meat is a luxury for a small number of people. People don't need it, right? And, uh, you know, they produce a lot of, you know, meat. Right? And today, if, if you look at China, when I was in China, you know, back in the 1980s, early 1980s, 70s, everybody was very skinny, right? But today, if you go to China, uh, you, you see enormous, you know, public health issues because of, you know, uh, meat consumption. So, yes. And then, Max, I suppose you could say that the continent of Africa is at the very other end of that spectrum. There is an awful lot of hunger across the entire continent. Um, and we've heard, you know, many, many years worth of stories of raising money to, to, to feed African nations. Um, do you think there's any scope for, for African people to be turned off a of food source when they just need some kind of food source? Well, you know, I think, I mean... I think it's it's important not to I mean to to label um, a continent uh, as being hungry. I mean you know there are some of the most industrious farmers in the world in in, in Africa, um, and I think some of the crises that hit, for example, Ethiopia, you know, Ethiopia today, it's it's transformed. I, I think there are, however, um, real challenges with rural livelihoods. Um, and, you know, I think that there's been a real lack of focus on ensuring that people who live um, in rural landscapes and next to, um, to wild habitat where wildlife exists have got the input, the agricultural inputs to become self-sufficient, different sort of um, the right kind of species to grow. And I think there's, you know, there's, there's very good farmers, but I think real investment in those livelihoods um, so that people are less dependent um, on uh, wild meat, for example, would, would, be, would be hugely beneficial. Um, and I think that's, that there are opportunities. I mean, before the COVID crisis, uh, wildlife-based tourism was a huge source of revenue. Um, and I think there's a real opportunity now, um, in this moment, for large corporations to start offsetting their carbon emissions by investing in standing uh, carbon stocks, which are rich in biodiversity, and channeling that to local communities and giving them opportunities for for greater um, for greater access to to revenue from different sources. And I think that's something that we need to start taking um, collective responsibility for. So I've had another reader's uh, sorry viewer's question from a, a gentleman named John Dyke who um, has asked. Um, something that I think is quite interesting given that uh, I read earlier that um, COVID-19 is very closely aligned with SARS, which we obviously saw far smaller outbreaks of in the early 2000s. And John's question is as follows. I have heard of another virus spreading from bats to humans by pigs and then to pig farmers. The bats had moved near to humans due to deforestation. Are corona types, type viruses more prone to this transfer? So I think that the idea of it going from um, animal to animal to human or in, and in between. I mean, Louise, do you think that that is a fair uh, description of coronavirus as being more liable to, to jump between species? 
Um, I might defer to uh, Peter on this one, but I mean, from my understanding of you know what's happened with the coronavirus is that that there was a bat involved, and um, that bats are you know res like reservoirs of huge amounts of pathogens, um, and that an intermediate intermediary species, um, you know, the pangolin has been suggested. I know that's far from from concrete. Um, but yeah, that, that to me um, sort of sounds like what's happened, but I will definitely defer to Peter on that one. Peter, do you want to pick up the mantle there? Yeah, there is also um, a misperception about the uh, wildlife market in Wuhan. People say, oh, there, there must be bats, you know, said in Wuhan. Uh, people in Wuhan, actually in most part of China's uh, wildlife eating markets, bats are not consumed in China. Now, uh, the bat was identified as a reservoir of, of various viruses, you know, including coronavirus. It's because, you know, in southwest China, bats could have had the droppings on the ground by uh, infecting snakes, for example, and the snakes may have been caught uh, into captive breeding, so not snake farms, and uh, you know, uh, or you know, uh, civic cats in the wild caught, but that was also infected with, you know, uh, a bat, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, feces, and a snake may have eaten uh, infected, you know, uh, bats. So, and then those animals were shipped to the market and infecting other, you know, animals. Now, we don't know, even though the World Health Organization sent a delegation to China uh, recently, and they produced a report saying that uh, uh, the source, you know, could it still be the uh, could it be the very source could it still be the bats, but which link of the wildlife trade had infected people is still unknown. Could it be on the market? Could it be by the people who shipped the you know animals to the market, or could it be on the farm and then the person go on with the animals to the market? So it's something you know to be you know studied uh, further. And then in terms of what we need to look forward. And, and kind of change or, or do differently. Um, Max, your, your piece for us about 10 days ago was really interesting in terms of the, the detail that you sketched out around the step-by-step -step, um, investment that needs to go into things like rangers and special investigators and uh, police and all the way through to magistrates. Um, how do you see this, the, the African side of this issue being addressed? What needs to happen and how? You know, the obvious and hopefully a big response will be from the global community and global leaders to say, look, we all agree we've got to do something. And uh, my expectation and hope is that there's um, either amendments to existing convention, um, for example, CITES, um, you know, which is a convention on the international trade, trade and endangered species um, that currently, you know, it, it involves nearly 6,000 wild animal species. But so amending those conventions so that we take into account public health is going to be really important. Potentially, we need a new international convention. We certainly need to look at things like the International Convention on uh, International Crime and amend that to include um, illegal wildlife crime. But the big challenge with these international conventions, which are absolutely necessary, especially for mobilizing political will behind this issue, is that domesticating those to source countries is a challenge. And it's really important to recognize that um, an international law is only as good as the country's rule of law in which you're trying to apply it. So the rule of law in each of um, these critical source countries and destination countries needs real investment and capacity. And that's possible, you know, and that really is possible. And we've seen, for example, 
a surgical intervention in Kenya, which involved investment in uh, capacity of prosecutors, um, and resulted in conviction rates for wildlife crime increasing from 26% to over 90% in just five years. So it is possible to, to make this happen. So if, and I think that's absolutely critical um, here is that we need to have that capacity on the ground to improve law enforcement. At the same time, we have to recognize that these natural ecosystems are getting fragmented every day. I mean, you know, we're losing um, uh, an area of, of, of forest the size of a football field every single minute. So you can imagine what that is doing in terms of weakening natural ecosystems, making them the animals inside those ecosystems more susceptible to disease, but also um, there's an increasing interface and interaction with those wild animals with people. So we've got to protect those natural ecosystems. That, that, that means making them valuable globally, nationally, but especially locally. Big investment in making them through you know, conservation enterprise. And I think there's a massive role. So it's a combination of the rule of law, but also in investing in conservation-based livelihoods on the ground and making those existence valuable. And that's a, that's, a, that's a big opportunity we have um, now. I mean, there's a real, you can imagine how much has been spent in this current COVID crisis with bailing out airlines, failing airlines, many of them. If you took a fraction of that investment and invested it into natural ecosystems, then you could actually protect these places and protect the spillover of wildlife into the markets, but also invest in the local communities who depend on those natural ecosystems for their livelihoods. And speaking of those natural communities, I mean, you're obviously on the ground in Kenya. Um, how do local populations, I mean, obviously I do appreciate that you can only really speak for what you've experienced either in Kenya or the nine other countries in which Space for Giant, Giants operates, but how do those local communities view the illegal wildlife trade? Is there general consensus that, you know, this is not okay? Or is it just a case of we are just trying to do what we can to survive in certain communities? What's, you know, as I say, what is the general consensus? It really varies. And I think that um, the key, there's a big difference between the commercial trade in wildlife and subsistence consumption for, um, you know, just for, for, for home. And I think that um, it's the corruption that criminal syndicates are investing in that really undermines um, community cohesion. Um, it, can, it can be very device, divisive for communities. So I think that um, it really varies where you are, but the illegal wildlife trade is a problem for many communities living um, and neighboring conservation areas. Um, so obviously um, I can't speak for, for, for all these communities, but I have certainly, I, mean, I've just, I just did a 10 hour drive from the Maasai Mara today, which has got virtually no tourists. And it's incredible to see communities there, despite this COVID crisis, still investing in um, conservation on the ground, still doing their best to protect this wildlife resource um, because they know how valuable it is for their future livelihoods, for their children's livelihoods, and because wildlife has disappeared elsewhere. And that's a quite an exceptional example, but there are many others like that. Um, the illegal wildlife trade is corrupting. Um, it's terribly, it undermines community cohesion, undermines the rule of law, and is something we need to get rid of for the sake of everyone. Peter, what about in, in China? Is there a general kind of sense amongst the population overall that, you know, these kind of unsanitary and not well-regulated, um, risky 
not uh, wet markets are, are, are not a good thing? Are they kind of, you know, something that most people would never have encountered or gone to in, in their lives? Or is, is it part of every, everyday life? Uh, it's not a part of everyday life. And uh, one, of, uh, one of wet markets account for a very tiny fraction of uh, the wet markets, you know, mostly wet markets for livestock. And even that regular wet markets, like what we saw in New York, uh, city 70 or 80, those, those type of things in China are also, you know, uh, declining in, uh, in number in China because of the invasion of Western style supermarkets in China. Uh, I would say this, you know, I am more uh, abolitionist uh, with regard to commercial wildlife trade. And I agree with, you know, uh, what Ma uh, Max just said. Uh, additionally, I said there is, there is no other way, you know, to protect wildlife. There is no way that you can improve this industry. There is only one solution, that's abolition, right? You know, outlaw all commercial wildlife, you know, trade for commercial purposes. Uh, you know, as I said earlier, the Chinese wildlife industry says that it's good for uh, conservation, good for, you know, uh, public health, good for poverty reduction. This is all forceful. You know, wildlife industry in China, you know, the breeding part accounts for uh, 91 billion US dollars in 2019, that's estimate. So what's the idea of 91 billion US dollars, uh, the, uh, the amount? It's about four times four times bigger than North Korea's GDP. Yes, it looks like enormous. But in China, China is the world's second largest economy, but just a, a, a drop in the bucket. So when this industry is outlawed, it doesn't impact China's economy at all. It doesn't impact China's you know, consumption. It doesn't impact anything in China. Right? And the so-called you know, health benefits, right? uh, that's also you know, been debunked by the Chinese you know, uh, uh, specialists. Finally, uh, you know, surveys after surveys in China show that you know, people uh, do not demand wildlife concern. They you know, oppose it, right? especially to cut the degradation. Now, one more thing, there is no way that you can regulate this industry. China has the world's biggest livestock industry. Food safety is a big issue in that you know, aspect. So China's regulatory resources have already spread very thin, right? And you cannot pull these regulatory resources to regulate an industry only serve the small number of people. So that's not the way to do it. So there is only one way uh, to outlaw wildlife uh, trade. That's very interesting because as you um, were giving us this answer, as someone who has labeled themselves anonymous attendee has submitted the following question, which is that there has been some debate over whether the, the legal wildlife trade should be shut down um, and due to the risk that zoonotic disease transmission causes. Should a distinction be made between the two with regard to the potential risks of zoonotic disease, I think the the two of the legal trans, uh, the, the legal trade and the illegal trade, with regards to the potential risks of zoonotic disease transmission and potential to prevent future pandemics. So, Max, I mean, with your conservation hat on, do you think that, I mean, what is the difference between illegal wildlife trade and what is legal? I mean, obviously, I, I do appreciate it depends country by country. And should we just be getting rid of all of it and just leaving the animals alone where they are, where they're meant to be? I mean, you know, in an ideal world, um, wild animals would be left um, where they are and could um, exist and evolve as they um, were intended. 
um, to, to, to be. But I think in, in reality, um, you know, you've got a huge amount of dependence on wildlife. As I said, there are 80 million people on the continent who depend on wildlife for protein. Um, I think the, the distinction is that animals that become very rare and there is um, a, a tragic list of animals. It's called the Red Book. It's created by the world, the IUCN or the World Conservation Union. And as an animal, as a species, you don't want to get on that list. And so um, there are various categories and, and, and the higher up the list you go, the more threatened you are, um, the tighter the regulations around trade. Um, but, you know, there are actually trade in legal trade in endangered animals. If it's considered sustainable, if it's considered um, potentially beneficial for that species. So I think the key is that right now in this environment, what we need to do is really clamp down on all illegal trade, but um, include sorts of practices um, and species that can are particularly threatening in terms of potential for zoonotic disease transfer. And that's the, that's the issue, is that it's not only the, 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 uh, the extinction crisis here, but we need to add on to the extinction crisis risk to public health. And that would, that would, that would certainly close up a lot of loopholes and, um, and, and, and reduce the threat to, to our collective health globally. Louise, you've obviously over the course of, of your reporting on, on the illegal wildlife trade, you've come into contact, I think, a few times with lawmakers in the United States and that kind of thing. How much of a, a genuine desire and an impetus would you say there is amongst uh, American uh, politicians to address this? I think there's definitely, I mean, last week there was a Senate committee hearing on it in the United States. Um, I think there's definitely people are starting to put this together more um, and are understanding that the risk exists. Um, but then you also have to look at the flip side of that. Like in the US, I think the numbers for it is US Fish and Wildlife are the organization that control the trade in and out of the US. Um, they have a, a kind of really small number of officers when you think about how many ports there are and the volume of um, species, you know, whether that be plants or animals that are arriving in the US. I think the number stands at like 700 officers or something um, you know so you, you have to look at how can they possibly stay on top of all of that you know as, as good as they are at their jobs it's just not possible so there really has to be people can talk a good game but there, there really needs to be more investment it, it seems to me um, if you know if they want to back that up. And Peter what about in, in China because obviously as you said it's the second largest economy in the world after after America um, is there the same is there an interest there now was there before COVID-19 is there an increased sense of the urgency of addressing this problem in, in China what have you seen in terms of politicians both in China and I suppose in, in the, the wider and um, you know continent of Asia but I know that your specific specialism is in is more southeast and eastern Asia I think China has done something uh, highly commendable in the last uh, seven months. You know, Wuhan was shut down, of course, and the wildlife trade was shut down, and uh, wildlife trade and consumption was, uh, you know, banned and elevated as a national legislative decision, but which did not happen after SARS. Now, after SARS, the trade ban was imposed for only two months, a little bit over two months, and then was lifted. Now, now this uh, trade ban so far has still been kept on. And wildlife, you know, markets have still been closed, so there is no opening of the wildlife wet market. And also, the 
the Chinese government is revising the wildlife protection law, which I believe is the source of all this wildlife ex exploitation uh, is the protecting wildlife. Uh, protecting wildlife has been protecting the wildlife business industry. Uh, so we see positive signs and also there is a spillover effect. You know, China declared dogs and cats companion animals for the first time. And first communist country declared dogs as companion animals. And also they are phasing out wildlife farms by providing, you know, monetary compensation for them to move to alternative livelihood. But I would say China's wildlife industry has five components. What is being shut down is only one of the five components. That's a, you know, breed operation for the exotic food. Wildlife for fur, farming for fur, for, you know, uh, traditional Chinese medicine, for display, and for laboratory use are still, you know, going on. So these are the so-called legal operations massive industrialized farming operations like a bay farming are still going on. They are potential, you know, hotbed for, you know, pandemics. So that's why my position is, you know, commercial wildlife, you know, exploitation should be phased out. So while you were giving that response, Roger has submitted a really interesting question, quite well timed, saying a lot of the discussion is about trying to turn off the supply of certain animals. Is there more that can be done to reduce the demand for these animals? So I, I suppose, Max, in terms of, say, for example, um, the bushmeat side of things in, in Africa, I mean, talking about the illegal wildlife trade that stays within Africa as opposed to shipping abroad, do you think that there's more that can be done there? Well, you know, it's interesting. I think that the um, demand for um, wild meat in Asia and in Africa is driven by the same sentiment that it's organic, it's healthy. Um, you know, it's a, it's, it's a way to, to maintain vitality. And I think that turning that off is, is challenging. The key is um, with legislation and law enforcement, and then at the same time, in alternative livelihoods. So investing in um, people's ability to um, have alternative sources of meat um, and to consume meat that's safer is certainly going to be a, a big part of it. I think already you're seeing massive changes. You know, you're seeing massive changes as, as um, countries develop, become more urbanized, and move away from um, move away in some cases from from wild meat. But there's does need to be a lot more done to reduce demand for particularly species that are are, are dangerous um, in terms of potential for zoonotic disease. Peter, would you say that China, obviously it's, it's done an awful lot, as you say, over the course of the last seven months, it's been, I suppose what you could say is exposed feels like a very harsh term, but it, you know, it's been very much seen as the, the source for this particular pandemic. Um, and they've, they've, they have implemented actions, but where, what can be done, as, as, as I've just asked of, of Max, in terms of the, the demand side? Where do we, how do we go about changing behaviours and getting rid of demand? Or would you say that, as was kind of alluded to earlier, it's falsified demand? Yes, yeah, I would say, you know, uh, you know, relatively speaking, it's not too difficult a task because the demand does not come from the people. It's not a part of the culture. If anything cultural, traditional, that's very hard to get rid of. If it comes from the small group of business interests, that's easy. And I believe uh, the Chinese government is much, much more, you know, determined this time compared with the SARS. So there is a good opportunity. Now, one thing also very important that international cooperation, especially cooperation between China and the industrialized world is very important. 
Now let's look at 2015, 2016, when China shut down the domestic ivory trade. That was not just the Chinese you know, political determination or political will. It has a lot to do with encouragement from the outside world. When President Obama talked to President Xi Jinping, when you talk to each other as equals, right? You don't shame the other side. You don't humiliate the other side. You sit down and tackle the global problem. You solve big problems. I have to tell you this, I was surprised when China announced the ending of domestic ivory trade. That's beyond my uh, you know, expectation. And I was also shocked when China declared a complete ban on wildlife consumption and wildlife trade in February. So that a lot of things can be very surprising. So if we treat the issue professionally, if we respect other countries' legitimate needs, but at the same time, you put the global interest on the table, we can accomplish a lot of things. Louise, you've obviously been very across kind of the global international efforts as well in terms of mobilizing um, some form of coordination in, in addressing the issue of the illegal wildlife trade. I know that you've had long discussions with the gentleman who was involved in CITES, the Australian who's name has just eluded me, but I'm sure you'll, you'll remind us in a second. But um, how much are you seeing of a, of a truly global effort? Like, is there a real kind of coming together of all countries? Because obviously it feels very much, you know, everything we've just discussed is what do all African nations need to do? What does China need to do? Whereas this, this, this can't just be one continent and one country coming together. It needs to be a truly global united front, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, you, you were referring to uh, John Scanlon, who is the former chief uh, or chief executive of CITES, um, the, the trade agreement that Mac mentioned, Max mentioned earlier. Um, and, and, you know, John is someone, along with others in his position, who've been across these sort of global, international treaties, that sort of world. And his perspective, and I think he speaks for, you know, others in that area, is that, you know, there is an appetite now to, you know, sort of either ramp up CITES to make it sort of bolster that already, you know, sort of mutual agreement or to, you know, add legal wildlife trade to, um, you know, the way we treat arms, the way we treat human trafficking and um, the way we treat drugs, treat it as seriously as that. I think the, the appetite is there to, to, you know, to address this issue. We've had one final question from a, a viewer, which I think is, a, is an excellent question for us to probably wrap up proceedings. So I'll throw it to all of you for a quick, quick soundbite, if I may. And it's from Mary Robinson, Robertson, not the uh, former Irish president, Mary Robertson. Um, and she asks, what can I do as, a, as an individual in terms of preventing the next pandemic? So I, I suppose, Peter, do you want to, to give what best advice you can to Mary about what she could do as an individual? I just want to say one thing, you know, uh, the pandemic, uh, COVID-19, originated in China. It has nothing to do with the Chinese culture. We have to understand this. It has nothing to do with the Chinese nation. It has a lot to do with the mode of production. When you force a large number of animals, you know, in an industrial scale, you create a problem. So I just want to say, you know, let's, you know, spread the information that anyone can be infected. If any country has this kind of, you know, massive production, we have a problem, be it wildlife animals or livestock animals. Louise? Um, I agree very much with what Peter said there. And I think it's important for us to look closer to home and be aware of, of what we, you know, the, the way that we go about, you know, our own diets, um, our own travel, our own tourism. Think about, you know, the supply chain of where you're getting your goods from. I think that's, you know, really key that we, this is not, 
as Peter mentioned, this is not China's problem. This is a problem for everyone. And I think that's, that's what's key. And Max? Yeah, I agree with both points. I think as an individual, um, you can do three things. The first thing is you can lobby um, your members of, of government, um, your elected members of government, to go out and, and take action um, internationally, um, put money um, into uh, law enforcement, um, and, and put money into protecting these national environments. And I think on an individual level in terms of consumption, I think that's really important. The value chain is so important. Buy thoughtfully. Um, and if you're going to start offsetting carbon, which we all will be doing, make sure that carbon is in existing carbon sinks that are biodiversity rich, and um, at least the loss is achieving two things, which one is obviously um, protecting us from climate change, and the second is protecting our collective health. Um, this is now an issue for all of us. There are some very excellent practical tips for everybody to, to take away, so thank you very much, Max. Well, I'm afraid we're out of time. Thank you to my colleague Louise Boyle, to Dr. Peter Lee all the way from Houston and to Dr. Max Graham all the way from Kenya for their expertise this evening. And thank you to all of you for attending as well. If you're not yet a subscriber, you can sign up to Independent Premium and get early bird access and free tickets to all our events at independent.co.uk forward slash subscribe and get your three months, first three months for just three pounds. Keep an eye out on your independent premium account and follow us on social media for the latest updates on future events just like this one. Until next time, goodbye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Hope you enjoyed that. Remember, if you want to take part in events like that one and have access to exclusive content, then click the link in the description of this podcast and subscribe to Independent Premium. Independent Premium.